as we've entered the second half of the bodies or the book's body, um, we have seen that Paul is arguing that in Christ the church has become a new creation, a new humanity. And last week in chapter 3, verses 5 through 17, Paul specifically focuses on how that new humanity comes to bear in a new society, the church, our, our call to treat one another. He uses that language, one another, frequently. Uh, with, he addresses sins that we are to put off that have to do with relationships, relational sins within the church community. So, verses 5 through 17 largely deal with what we might call our spiritual family, the transformation of our spiritual family. But he doesn't stop there. In verses 18 and following that Sam just read, Paul also says that this new humanity, this new creation, this new transformation ought to take place in the home, our physical families, our biological families. And our uh, message today that we get from this passage, this passage, if we were to boil it down into one sentence, it would essentially be this, that Christ is Lord over our relationships, specifically in the home, as he's addressing them here. Christ is Lord over our relationships. I was at Culver's the other day. I think it was for Jubilee's birthday. We were there getting some custard. And uh, I noticed there was this, this man who was behind me. Uh, he was getting his order brought to him. And the, the, the worker at Culver's, probably a high school student or uh, maybe a college student, something like that, younger guy, uh, brings out this big order to go to this man, and the man was just incredibly rude to him. Um, he, there, he, one of the pieces of the order was this ice cream, which they normally put like this plastic container over it, and that's kind of how you take it to go. And the, the customer was so rude, like, why, do, why are you putting it in that container? I need it in a bag to go. And he was just being unnecessarily rude to this worker. Um, I, I was so taken off guard. In, in retrospect, I wish I had said something like, hey, don't treat him like that. Like, I, I used to work, and maybe you worked in a restaurant setting, and so, just something like that can kind of ruin your whole, whole day. It just gets to you. Because what are you called to do in that moment when you're working? You know, the customer is always right, so the saying goes. In other words, that, that young man who is working for Culver's doesn't represent himself in that moment. And as much as he might want to say something back, he did the right thing, and he kept his mouth shut. And I could kind of see his face being like, as he walked away, like, why is that guy being such a jerk to me? But he did the right thing. He's representing Culver's as he interacts with that disgruntled customer. Or you might think of a deputy or a secretary of the state, that if the United States or any other country appoints someone for a certain role, maybe it's as an ambassador or a secretary of state or whatever role they have, someone who's a deputy of our government, Wherever they go and they carry out those functions, they are not just representing themselves. They are not just acting as themselves, but they are acting in all of their relationships as determined by the, 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 the one that is above them, the, the, the king, as you were, or the president, or the government. The lordship that is above them determines how they must relate to every single person. It determines the capacities in which they function and how those functions are to be carried out. Similarly, Paul here is saying that Jesus' lordship ought to determine how we relate to one another in the home, specifically. Christ's lordship determines our relationship. Similar to how that, that young man, his way he interacted with that customer is determined by his employer 
or a deputy of the state. As we've seen already in the book, as the passage that Sam preached in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, we saw this great Christ hymn of Christ's preeminence over all things. He is the creator of all things. All things were created by him and for him. And not only is he, not only is he the creator, but then he's the redeemer. He's the one who makes a new creation. And so he is the head of the redeemed people, the church, so that in all things, Paul says, he might be preeminent. He might have superiority. He might be deemed, considered, and have that place of superiority over everything else. So now Paul is taking that reality here of Christ's lordship, his preeminence, and he's saying that has implications for your relationships with others. How does Christ's preeminence shape our relationships is the question. And so what we'll do in today's sermon is first we're going to look at Christ's lordship. We're going to see the evidence for where I'm getting that in this passage. And then we're going to look at its application to specific relationships as Paul details that. And then we'll have some closing reflections. So first, we see Christ's lordship in this passage. As we read it, hopefully you noticed how much that word Lord is repeated. In the passage that uh, Sam read for us, it's repeated eight times. Seven of those is in reference to Jesus. The word that's translated master or masters in verse 4 is the same word for Lord in Greek. It's all the same. And so even there, it's masters. You have a Lord. So earthly lords, you have a Lord in heaven. Or even if you want to include verse 17 from last week, it talks about the Lord Jesus there. So Lord is just like loaded in this little paragraph here. The word Lord is loaded. And this Lord is specifically Jesus. As we see in verse 17, the name of the Lord Jesus. Or in verse 24, serving the Lord Christ So it's specifically Christ here who's in view. And Jesus is this Lord. Of course, God is Lord over all things by nature of being God. He is in control of all things. He owns all things. He's the boss of all things. Okay, But he also then in Christ takes lordship over all things in in a redemptive sense. God is sovereign over all things, but that sovereignty is contested. We rebel against God. God. We disobey him. We don't honor his sovereignty. But in Christ, God is reclaiming that sovereignty. And he is beginning a, he has begun and is bringing forth a new kingdom. And as we saw earlier in the book in verses 12 through 14, we see that God has transferred us into the kingdom of his son. And so this is the lordship here in view is This is how Christ has been exalted. He has ascended to the right hand of God following the salvation that he accomplished. And so now now what Paul wants to do is he not only wants us to see the lordship that's repeated all throughout this section, but he's going to apply it specifically to our relationships. There's a few questions, though, that emerge with a passage like this. Some questions I, I, I imagine you thought of as we read it or are thinking of now. This passage mentions bond servants. Uh, which is uh, another way of saying slaves. And the slavery here in the Greco-Roman context would would have its differences from what we tend to think of it in our American context where it was race-based. But there are still similarities um, where it was owning another human being. Sometimes, not always, sometimes it was uh, like in the the Old Testament is even different than this. We have to keep that in mind too, Old Testament slavery. 
But here it was maybe someone who sold themselves into slavery, but sometimes it was someone who was kidnapped, maybe in war. We, we have to ask the question, why is Paul giving these instructions to slaves? And very simply, as we will see in a bit, um, Paul is instructing the slaves given their situation as it stands. We see this, for example, I believe it's in 1 Corinthians 7, where he, he deals with Christians and says, as you are, like, I'm going to deal with you as you are. But he nonetheless tells slaves there, like, if you can get free, do it. But nonetheless, the New Testament just, like, Paul doesn't, he's not a legislator, he's not the emperor, he can't just change the laws. So simply by giving instructions to the slaves in their situation is not to say that he's condoning the situation. That's a big thing we need to keep in mind. Now, we would say, though, that slavery is a result of the fall, and it's not something that we should emulate. It's part of the fallen order. And that raises the question, then, of, okay, so if Paul is sort of accommodating to the situation as it is, does that mean that there are other groups mentioned here and other instructions that are just sort of contextual, and maybe we don't have to practice them today? Namely, uh, the one that you're probably thinking about would be wives submitting. Is that simply something that existed then, but we don't really do that now, you know, slavery was something that he accommodated to. But what we see as we look at the rest of Scripture is that the call for wives to submit is, uh, it stands a bit different than the call to the slave. When we look at other parts of Scripture, we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that God's design for husband and wife is rooted in creation itself. It doesn't happen post-fall like slavery does. You don't get slavery in the garden. But what you do have in the garden is this creation of man and woman with their distinct roles. Um, we also see that Paul, and, and Paul will root his understanding of men and women and their roles, for example, in 1 Timothy 2, in the creation. Something that transcends a cultural moment and particular fallen realities. We also see in Ephesians 5 that Paul links the relationship of husbands and wives as a picture of Christ in the church. Not something, he doesn't link it to something specific going on in that culture, but he links it to the imagery of Christ in the church. And so these teachings uh, have transcendent uh, quality to them. Um, and, and I do realize, and we probably realize, that this is nonetheless a rather countercultural idea in our current uh, context in which um, sort of egalitarian and feminist ideas abound. And so let me just read you a quote from R.C. Sproul that I think is, a help, is helpful, not only at this part of Scripture, but as we approach any part of Scripture that maybe we find to be difficult. R.C. Sproul says this. He says, You are required to believe what the Bible says is true, not what you want the Bible to say is true. When there's something in the Word of God that I don't like, the problem is not with the Word of God, it's with me. Or C.S. Lewis says, building on that, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, if Christianity could tell me no more than my own temperament led me to surmise already, it just tells me what I already kind of want to believe and what I already think, then Christianity would be no higher than myself. If it has, mo if it, if it has more to give me, I expect it to be less immediately attractive than my own stuff. If our religion is something objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it will be precisely the puzzling or the repellent which conceals what we do not yet know and need 
to know. In other words, we don't want to just make our Christianity and our, our understanding of Christian ethics, we're so tempted to do this, a simple mirror of what we already believe. And then to somehow label it as biblical. I believe the Bible, therefore what I believe is biblical, therefore whatever I happen to believe, I just equate with biblical ideas and we make the Bible sort of this mirror of what I already believe. We have to allow the Bible to actually confront us. Also, and not simply imposing some predetermined idea of what we should think of as right and wrong and somehow placing that on the Bible. Where do we get a standard of right and wrong? Not some free-floating ideas we have, but from Scripture itself. And so we should be willing to let Scripture confront our values. Now, one of the other questions, though, is whether the submission here, or uh, at times with, with children, it says, like, obey, obey, whether that obedience or submission is absolute. Does this mean that you always have to, that wives should do whatever their husband says, no matter what it is, or that we should, children should do whatever their parents say, no matter what? And their answer to that is clearly no. We can think of what the apostles said in regard to uh, the, the, the government rulers in their day with, with Acts 15. We must obey God rather than men. So God has appointed certain entities, certain people, institutions like the government, uh, husbands and, and parents to, to, have, um, to have leadership. And, and he does call Christians to submit. One of the characteristics of a Christian is to be a submissive person. That's not unique that's, a, that's across the board, that Christians are to be characterized by submissiveness in different uh, spheres that we, that we operate in. Um, but that submission is with the understanding that those, those entities above us are actually conducting um, in ways that don't go against what God says. And so when, uh, if, if a husband or a parent was to tell their wife or their child to do something that was sin, of course we would say no. In that case, you don't submit, you don't obey. And we can see that from the reasons that Paul gives uh, here, where he says that it is submission to husbands is fitting in the Lord. In other words, it's, it's fitting. It's fitting to how Christ has ordained things to be. But if you were to submit to your husband when he's telling you to sin, that's not fitting to the Lord. That actually goes against the very undergirding reason. Or he says that children are to obey because it pleases the Lord. And of course, sin doesn't please the Lord. So if, they were to, if you were to obey in such a way that as actually sin, that doesn't please the Lord. Or he gives other reasons, fearing the Lord. You're serving the Lord. So the, the, the underlying reason is what trumps all. Now, we should also see, though, that even as Paul, in many ways, is holding up these, this order, even hierarchy, we might say, it is nonetheless done so in such a way that Christ's lordship revolutionizes these relationships and is rather, rather actually subversive to the normal order of how we think about these things. Think about marriage, for example. The husband, or the father here, in this passage, is not the ruler of their home. In other words, this is not what is sometimes called patriarchy, where the patriarch, the father, is the ruler. That's how it would have been thought of in that time period, is that the father essentially was the ruler. He like owned his wife. He like owned his children. He owned the slave. And what he said went, and that was it. He was the boss. It ends right there. Who is the ruler of the home here, though? It's Christ. Christ is the Lord. Christ is the ultimate head of the home. And so the father actually submits to Christ's lordship. Even as he leads the home and he's the head of the home, he has to do so under the headship of Christ. 
And husbands here, in a rather radical way, we actually have documents of other sort of uh, passages like this outside of the Bible where someone would give instruction on sort of how the home was to be ordered. It's called household codes. Um, It's never told husbands that they should love their wives. The focus is always on how the man is the head and everyone else has to kind of do what he says. But here, Paul actually, and we see that elsewhere in, in other examples of this in scripture, husbands are actually called to sacrificially love their wives. There's a level of uh, reciprocity here. And they're not to lead harshly. Whereas in that culture, they would have been allowed to lead harshly if they want. It's their right. So there's actually something radical going on here, something rather countercultural here. Or slavery, even as Paul gives instructions to slaves, his instructions actually undermine the very institution of slavery, even as he does so. We see in chapter 3, verse 11, that Paul has already told us that in this new humanity, there is what? Neither Greek nor Jew, but also neither slave nor free. In Christ, there is no distinction between the slave and the slave master. There is a spiritual equality that exists between them. And that's a radical idea in that context. It gives dignity to the slave, in other words. There's a revolutionary equal standing that Paul is presenting. And the slave master himself has a master. Masters, verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master, you also have a lord in heaven. In other words, the slave and the master both have the same master. And in that sense, they're put on equal footing. And notice in verse 22, where even when Paul addresses the slave and he says, talks about their relationship to their master, verse 22 here, he says, bond servants, obey everything, those who are in everything, those who are your earthly masters. He doesn't just say masters, he says earthly masters. What does that imply? It means that's not their only master. That's just their earthly master. They have a greater master that they serve. He's subtly undermining the institution of slavery. Or if you're familiar with Onesimus, the book of Philemon, um, the book of Philemon is a a letter that Paul actually sends along with Colossians um, because Philemon was a part of the church in Colossae. And Onesimus was one, of the, was one of the members there as well. Onesimus was a slave that most people believe uh, fled and ran away from his slave master, Philemon. Um, and he gets mentioned in this letter. If you look at chapter 4, verse 9, when Paul is sending the letter, he says, With him, Onesimus. Now notice how he describes Onesimus. Our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. He's, one of, he's part of your church. He's a believer. But he noticed how he calls him a faithful and beloved brother. He calls him a brother. He puts him on equal footing. This is also interesting. He mentions other, Paul mentions other people here where he calls, for example, uh, Tychicus a fellow servant, a fellow slave. He calls Tychicus a slave. But interestingly, he avoids calling Onesimus a slave. He calls him a faithful brother. That might be intentional. If you go over to Philemon, Philemon 1.15 through 16, very interesting. Notice how, remember how he called Onesimus a faithful brother, our beloved brother, verse 15 and 16 in, in Philemon, when he's actually writing to the slave master now of Onesimus. For this purpose is why he, Onesimus, was parted from you for a while that you might have him back forever. Notice this. No longer as a bondservant or slave, but now, 
more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. That language, in other words, of like, hey, maybe go ahead and free him, is that language of beloved brother, which is what Paul has called him in Colossians. No longer as a slave, but as a beloved brother, which Paul has labeled him. And interestingly, we don't know this for sure, but in the early church documents we have, the church fathers, some of the earliest writings, Ignatius, um, who is a disciple of Polycarp, who is a disciple of John, the apostle, he writes a letter to Ephesus, which was just nearby Colossae, really close city, and he mentions that their pastor in Ephesus was Onesimus. We don't know if it's the same Onesimus. It was a common name, but it was also a name very common for, for slaves to be named Onesimus because it meant useful. And so it may be, given the proximity, that this Onesimus was freed and it actually became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. And so Christ's lordship is revolutionizing these relationships. Even children, even the concern here for good treatment of children would have been quite revolutionary. All car, our culture really prizes children and we like organize our lives around children. But then children were much more, you know, kind of to be seen, not heard was in the extreme then. So even for Paul to mention good treatment of children, like not to antagonize them, even that's revolutionary. And so we see first Christ's lordship. Now we see how that plays out in relationships. And there's, there's essentially three groups here. There's husbands and wives, there's fathers and children, and then there is slave and slave master. Let's begin with husbands and wives. Look at verses 18 and 19. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And so unlike much of our current culture right now, which promotes confusion about gender, Scripture all throughout, shows us that God made male and female. He made them equal, and yet he also made them different and complementary. And those differences bear out here, for example, in the marriage relationship. And so Paul tells wives to submit. And what exactly does that mean, though, for wives to submit? Well, it doesn't mean total passivity. It doesn't mean that wives never share their opinion or ne never take the lead or oversight in certain things, that they have to sort of be micromanaged by the husband and get everything approved by the husband. Husband and wife, we see throughout Scripture, are meant to be partners. We see this in Genesis 2. They're meant to be companions where God, he says it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he creates Eve for him as a companion, as a partner. Nonetheless, the wife here is to exhibit a submissive disposition as she looks to and receives leadership from her husband in the home. And this headship of the husband, Paul doesn't use the language headship here, but he does elsewhere. This headship, this leadership of the husband then that's implied, it isn't to be thought of as something that the husband uses for his own privilege or advantage. That's not the idea here. It's more the idea of him carrying responsibility to lead and to care. He doesn't lord his leadership over the wife, using it to make demands and to serve his own self-interest. You notice in verse 19, he's not to lead harshly. Maybe that's because men, we tend to be harsher than women, and we need to be careful not to be harsh with our wives. He says, don't lead harshly. But like Christ in the church in Ephesians 5, the husband loves his wife by sacrificially serving her. The husband is called to love, to give himself for his wife. Second, we see fathers and children. Look at verse 21 
or 20 and 21 with me, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children or antagonize them, lest they become discouraged. And so children are to obey, and uh, fathers here are not to antagonize and to, dis- to, to, to parent their kids in such a way that would discourage them. Um, and you might translate this parents, um, the plural fathers, does oftentimes have that meaning of parents. So this is really applicable for both uh, moms and dads. And yet I also think it's not merely coincidental, coincidental that he mentions it as fathers. Because fathers are the head of their homes. And so what's interesting is that fathers then bear that ultimate responsibility for rearing their children. Like, when it comes to parenting, he mentions men. He mentions fathers. It's very easy, I think, for, uh, for dads to be absentee when it comes to rearing their children and moms to take the primary responsibility in that. And not that moms don't play a significant role, but I think what this implies is that men also need, we need, in other words, the Christian home has no place for an absentee father. Men need to be involved in their kids' lives and take responsibility for raising their children. Then thirdly, we see, this, we see the slave-master relationship. And now many will make application of this relationship to employment in our context. And I, I do think that's a, a, an appropriate application. Um, there are, of course, differences between being an employee and being a slave, right? When you're an employee, you're not owned. Um, you're hopefully not going to be treated with injustice that is maybe more susceptible in a slave relationship. But nonetheless, because this is dealing with an economic relationship, that's the idea here, is you have someone who, is, who owns someone else for the sake of their work and employment, you might say. That's why it calls him a bondservant in the ESV. I do think we can learn things about our own work, our own role as employers or employees from this passage. And so he tells uh, slaves to work obediently. We see this in verse 22 and 23, if you'll read with me. Bondservants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by, or earthly lords, that is, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work hardly as for the Lord and not for men. We'll stop there for now. Okay, so he says, I want you to work sincerely. I want you to work hard, to work eagerly, and not by way of eye service, the ESV says. This is the idea of, as the NIV says, not only working hard when their eye is on you, but work sincerely knowing that you are ultimately serving Christ. And those are the two reasons he gives. Notice he says, first of all, your true Lord is the one that you ultimately work for. Your true Lord is the one that you ultimately work for. He says this in 22, that you're, you're working fearing the Lord. Verse 23, you work as for the Lord and not ultimately for men. And then he says this uh, in, at the end of verse 24. He says, you're serving the Lord Christ. So we serve ultimately Christ when we work. And not only is our true Lord the one that we work for, but we also get our true inheritance from Christ. That's what we ultimately work for. In verse 24 and 25, continuing, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. This this language of inheritance coming from the Old Testament, the idea of Israel inheriting the land when when God redeems them out of Exodus, this idea of what's then awaiting them after they've been redeemed, what's the the place awaiting them. Similarly, in the New Testament, we get that language. We've been redeemed, and now the inheritance is what's awaiting us. 
the new creation. And so this is a salvation that awaits them. He's mentioned this in chapter 1, verse 2, where God has qualified us to share in the inheritance when Christ has transferred us into his kingdom. And what's interesting is that in this context, slaves would not have normally, it would have been very bizarre for a slave to have been a recipient of an inheritance. In fact, Paul contrasts that in Galatians, right? If you're a slave, you're not a son who gets the inheritance. But in Christ, these slaves get a better inheritance than they ever would, earthly speaking, financially speaking. They get a greater reward. The true reward that they work for then, the true, the true employer they have is Christ, and the true reward, the true payment they get is the inheritance from Christ. And that's because not only is there a reward, but there's retribution. The wrongdoer is going to be paid back. Whether that's the slave who is, who is not working as they should, and God is going to hold them accountable, or I think also whether it's the master who's mistreating them and will bring justice on their behalf. And so for us, this has implications for how we work. We ought to work knowing that we serve ultimately the Lord, not simply trying to just skirt by in our work and, and do the bare minimum or only work hard when the, when the boss is looking, but to, but to work knowing that we serve the Lord and doing a good job, working well. It also speaks to the value of our work. If I'm serving God, then no matter what my work is, it is of immense value because it's actually worship that I offer to God. Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation uh, made huge strides in our thinking on this. Whereas prior to the Protestant Reformation, when you had sort of the Roman Catholic Church and its system of monks, you had this sharp bifurcation between the people who were priests and monks, and they were kind of considered as doing like the real meaningful work. They were worshiping God. You know, they reserved their whole life for worshiping God, and everyone else just kind of did mundane things that didn't matter. And Martin Luther comes along, and he opposes this distinction between the sacred and secular, as if the clergy are the ones who really serve God and everyone else doesn't. Rather, he saw in Scripture that all work is done in service to God and therefore is of incredible value and is actually your worship to God as you love God through your work and as you serve humanity oftentimes through your work. You love God and you love your neighbor. Uh, Martin Luther has this quote that I think is really helpful. He says, a poor maid, kind of like a servant I think he has in view here, a poor maid should have the joy in her heart of being able to say, now I am cooking, making the bed, sweeping the house. Who has commanded me to do these things? Well, my master and mistress have. What has given them authority over me, though? God has. In God's sovereignty, that's how he's ordained things to be. Very well, then. It must be true that I am serving not them alone, but also God in heaven, and that God must be pleased with my service. How could I not possibly be more blessed than to, than to get to serve God? In other words, this, this hypothetical maid says, why? My service is equal to cooking for God in heaven. And that's how we should think about our own work. But not only does this have application for normal employment relationships, it also then speaks to the situation of oppression that the slave was in. And so even when we find ourselves in difficult situations, situations caused by the sins of others, or situations that are, are the result of the fall, notice Paul says here, this doesn't undo our need to submit to Christ's lordship, even in those situations. To the masters, though, he says this. He says, masters, or lords, in an earthly sense, 
Treat your bondservants justly and fairly. Again, subverting things here. You have to do it in a certain way, knowing that you also have a Lord, a master in heaven. And so as we think about contemporary applications of this, I think of managers or business owners would kind of be the comparable group here. This instruction here is in contrast to sort of an unbridled capitalism, which treats profit as the end in and of itself, and profitability as the controlling principle. No, Paul says, serving Christ, it's his lordship that's the controlling principle. And so you might run a successful, quote-unquote, successful business, but if you do so at the expense of your employees or at the expense of caring for God's environment, you are disavowing Christ's rightful lordship over your business. You don't own your company, ultimately, Paul would say. Christ does. Managers manage under the lordship of Christ. And so, again, the, 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 the gist of this passage is this, that Christ is lord over all of our relationships. That's whether, it's, uh, whether a husband and wife relationship, whether a child and father, or even our work situations or situations of oppression. Christ is to serve as lord over it all. Not only does this new humanity come to transformation in the church, but also Christ is bringing about his preeminence and transformation of the new humanity in the home. And all of this is because of what Christ is doing to bring about the new humanity. This is not a passage of just do this, do this, do this. It comes in a book where right before it, Paul has told us the source of this transformation power, right? Over and over, he talks about how we have died with Christ. The old self, the old humanity is dead, and through union with Christ, by being joined to him, by trusting in him, we have now been risen with Christ, and we are this new people. Let that work its way out in our homes, in our relationships with others. He has been made our Lord. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son by Jesus' death, having forgiven us through the redemption that is in Christ's death on the cross and paying for our sins that otherwise would have separated us from God. And so I think we are left then to ask this question of this passage is, are your relationships, are our relationships marked by Christ's lordship over them? Is When you think about the way you relate in the home specifically and, and elsewhere at work, what defines how you go about that relationship? What, what defines the contours and the way you go about navigating those relationships? How you relate to others? It's like the deputy of the state, right? It's like that kid at Culver's. It's not ultimately up to him anymore. We don't, and, and we as Americans, we don't like authority very much. Like it's kind of in our history, right? Throw the tea in the, in the bay, that whole stuff. We don't like people telling us what to do. Like, no one's going to tell me what to do. Don't tread on me. We're anti-authority. But as Christians, that's, a, that's an anti-Christian sentiment. We submit to those that God has put in place. We submit ultimately to Christ. We are deputies of his lordship. And so no matter where I go, I have to be uh, relating to others with him as my lord, as him calling the shots for what that looks like not myself. We no longer get to define how we relate to others. Christ is our Lord. And I think, it's a, I think it's really important to note that as Paul talks about this transformation, he takes a whole paragraph just to talk about how it should impact the home. 
In other words, when, when you come up to Paul and you say, hey, Paul, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, no way. How can we continue to sin? Continue in sin when we've died to it. And he goes right to the home in a book like this. He says, yeah, and it should change the way your home looks. When Paul paints, paints a portrait of the gospel's effect on believers, he showcases transformation in the home, in our marriages, in the way we interact with our children, any children in this room, any way you interact with your parents. The question then is, are our homes any different than they would be if we weren't believers? Do they look any different because you follow Jesus and submit to his lordship? You see, the church is to be a countercultural community. We're supposed, to, we're supposed to be salt and light, right? A city on a hill. And that is a way that we display the gospel. Not only do we uh, advance the gospel by telling it to others, but we also then should display it with our lives. Our home should be beacons of the gospel. That our neighbors, our coworkers, as they encounter our homes, the way we relate to one another, or the way we interact with our boss or our fellow coworkers, it should be a beacon of the gospel displaying its effect. Our home should have the aroma of the gospel. Do our homes commend Christianity to our neighbors? Or are they just kind of neutral? Or even worse, a stumbling block? I also think, though, that this passage shows us that how we relate to one another, whether that's as husband or wife, or how we carry out our different roles, whether that's as a parent or uh, an employee, uh, the, the truth of this passage infuses all of that with incredible worth. So if you're a parent and maybe you're struggling with little kids at home, it's tough. I know. I work from home. I get to see my wife struggling through it. Know that it's it's worship to God. It's of service to him. He is Lord, and as you do what he has called you to do, even when it's hard, it is a way of, like that maid, I get to serve in the Lord's house. When you work maybe a job that you don't enjoy, I've been there. I, I, I worked jobs before being full-time pastor, and you know, I had to preach, I, I, I put my, my company's mission statement in my cubicle so I could remember this is my company's mission statement and I want to know how when I'm doing mundane things like taking calls, I can serve that mission, which is ultimately a mission of serving people, worshiping God by, by seeking the good of humanity. So that I remembered when I was struggling with doing mundane tasks and this is just boring work, that I'm serving an ultimate, I'm serving a higher purpose, keeping what my company has in view in mind, but ultimately subjecting that to the Lordship of Christ. Nothing is mundane anymore. We get to do all of it for the worship of Christ. How you treat your wife, how you treat your husband, is a matter of serving Christ. It's not inconsequential. And if you are here today and you are not yet a believer in Jesus, then, then I hope that this passage shows you your need to submit to the Lordship of Christ. We recently preached through Judges, and it, this, this passage makes me think of the end of Judges, where everyone's doing right in their own eyes, whether that's on the level of morality or religion or whether it's as a society. We see in the end of Judges, we see all the atrocity of what it looks like for people to, to try to be their own Lord, essentially, and to do life their own way. We as human beings need the order that God gives. He has designed this world a certain way, and we need to submit ourselves to Christ to live in line with that design. Ultimately, though, we need to be reconciled with God and made a part of his kingdom. And our sins are what separate us from God. God has nonetheless sent Christ in his love to die for those sins 
so that we can be made a part of his saving kingdom and be made in right relationship to him, which includes having him Lord of our life. And so if you haven't done that today, we would, we would plead with you to put your faith in Christ. As we come to the Lord's Supper every week, we are reminded of that gospel. Uh, the, the Lord's Supper, one of the things that it is, is it's also a weekly renewal of our own faith. Not only do we see God, God proclaiming the gospel in the Lord's Supper as he depicts the, the gospel story in the elements of the cup and the bread representing Christ's body given over for us in his saving death, but also Paul tells us to remember. We are, it's an expression, in other words, not just of what God has done, but it's also a renewal of our own faith. It assumes that we believe the message of the gospel that we are uh, dramatizing in the Lord's Supper. And I like how Zwingli, one of the reformers, how he spoke of the Lord's Supper then. He referred to understanding the Lord's Supper as an expression of our faith, among other things. He spoke of the Lord's Supper as this weekly renewed pledge to follow God. Almost like a soldier taking an oath of allegiance. He, he said the Lord's Supper is like that. It's our weekly allegiance, our weekly oath of allegiance to Christ. Christ is Lord. And by taking of the Lord's Supper, that is our weekly uh, renewed oath of allegiance to him.